Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. This morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or if you didn't bring your Bible, um, we have Bibles on the tables, or you can use your phone, or we have it on the screen, if you can see that. <laughs> so maybe if you're in the first set of tables, you can read that, I don't know. It's kind of small. All right, Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up or going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of, of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." can have a seat. I have to admit, my wife asked me 
last night, hey, can you read the passage tomorrow? I thought to myself, Genesis 2, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. There's no words in there that I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> until I got to it this morning. Oh, wait, how do I pronounce that word? So hopefully I did all right with those. If I didn't, Coleman will correct me later. So, um, so I like to think of myself as a little bit handy, as a very wise man once said, if the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy, right? So I like to think of myself, that's red-green if you didn't know that, oh, if you ever watched the red-green show, okay. Okay. Uh, I like to think of myself as a little handy, uh, a little, a, have a little bit of ability to do some home improvement projects, and over the years as I've done a few things here and there, what I've realized is there's a huge difference when you have the right tool for the job, right? I mean, anyone who's worked uh, around the house or anywhere knows the difference that having the right tool for the job makes. In the spring, I uh, made for... Uh, my wife, a love seat, an outdoor love seat out of, out of cedar, and I'd never done anything like that before. And I tell you what, having the right jig and clamps made all the difference. It, it took a job that would have been horrendous, would have been terrible to do, and the result would have been horrible, and made it at least somewhat decent and, and you know, worth sitting on and putting outside. And my wife will at least let it sit outside of her house that, where people can actually see it. So it must have been decently done. But it made an impossible job pretty easy. That is, once I figured out how to use the jig correctly, right? How to set the right depth for the wood that I was using, how to, which screws uh, went with that, set, that particular depth setting. And once I figured out how to use it, particularly once I figured out how to use the jig according to how the jig was designed to be used, it became a pretty easy and enjoyable thing. It took a frustrating job and it made it satisfying. You see, over the last couple of weeks, we've established with crystal clarity that the Bible declares that God created everything, including man. And as we leave this first section of Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and we move into this first main section, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, we see that it starts with this familiar phrase, or what will become a familiar phrase as we go through Genesis, these are the generations of. We're going to see that repeated in 10 different sections throughout Genesis. But this first one, it doesn't say these are the generations of this person or that person. It says this is, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. These are the first generations, the beginning, the first people. Though the introduction gave us an overview of creation, what we're going to see here in this chapter is a more specific account. Not a, not a contradictory one, but one with a specific emphasis on the beginning of the generations, particularly a specific emphasis on the special creation of Adam and Eve. You can think of it like this. If, if, if uh, Genesis 1's creation account was like watching the football, a football game, watching the Chiefs game today, right? Yay, Chiefs. Okay. 
If Genesis 1 was like watching a football game, then Genesis 2's creation account is like watching an instant replay that focuses just on a few players in a specific and important play or sequence of the game. It's like this replay of the Super Bowl when you know, they go to timeout and Patrick Mahomes comes over and says, hey, can we run, do we have time to run this play? And they're like, I don't know. And he goes out there and he runs the play and Tyreek Hill catches the pass and they get the first down and they go and they score and they win the Super Bowl, right? Like you've seen that. I just like watch it and I tear up, you know, but it's like this specific account with specific players showing this, how this specific play came about. And so here in Genesis 2, we have this zoomed in account of how God created Adam and then how he created Eve. And it's here because it's an incredibly important play in the game of creation. There's perhaps no important, no more important question for us to answer for ourselves than some of the questions that this chapter answers or begins to answer. Questions like, what am I created for? What's the purpose of mankind? We're going to see that here. But as we start this chapter, we need to understand the surrounding context. We need to understand that chapter 2, verse 4, starts a new unit that goes through the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, a, a bigger unit. And here in this chapter, it gives us the initial setting for this part of the story. It gives us It sets the stage, if you will, for what's going to follow. And what's going to follow is important to our understanding of this passage. What's going to follow is Genesis 3, the climax of this section, which is Adam and Eve's sin and fall, the curse that comes upon them from God. And then in chapter 4 of Genesis, kind of the new reality of humanity continually sinning more and more and more. And that's important because here in this initial setting, we see a contrast. There's a contrast here to the upcoming disobedience that's going to happen. And I'm going to argue that with that in mind, the bottom line of our passage this morning is is this, that God made us in the beginning that God made us to obediently serve him. That that this whole section, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, is contrasting how God made us in the beginning, obediently serving him with the disobedience that will come. But it's important for us to understand this initial setting. This passage, it sets the stage and it makes it clear that That even though Adam and Eve sin, even though we all sin, God has given us everything that we need to obediently serve him. He's given us everything that we need to fulfill this purpose. And and we're going to see four different areas, or at least that's how I've broken the passage up. We're going to see that that God gave Adam the capacity for service in verses 4 through 7. That God gave Adam a place for service in verses 8 through 14. That God gave Adam the parameters for his service in verses 15 and 7 through 17. And that God gave Adam a partner in service in verses 18 through 25. You see, here's the deal. The world, generally speaking, you watch a show, you hear someone talking. 
what you hear them say is that our purpose or, or what we're trying to get in this life is happiness, right? As the song goes, I can't get no satisfaction, right? And that, that is the end, that is the, the goal that we're trying to achieve. If you can just get a little happiness. And I even heard Christians say, you know, oh, no, 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 my, I'm supposed to serve God. And da, 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 da. But then you begin to ask them about their life and they're like, ah, this isn't working, I'm not happy. Wait, 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 hold on. I thought you said this was your purpose. But then you're, the one thing that you're evaluating your life on is what? Based on your happiness, as if that's your purpose. So you can say that, that your purpose is to serve God all you want. But when you evaluate your entire life based on how happy things make you, what you are actually trying to achieve is something different. So I want to challenge that a little bit as we read through this. And I think what we're going to find is that it's actually in obediently serving God and pursuing that end that we find our deepest satisfaction and joy and blessing. So let's jump into the passage. Verses five and six, it says this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. What we find here is a description of the circumstances around which the first man, Adam, was made. And it's not a contradictory or competing account from Genesis 1, which says that the vegetation sprouted days before man's creation, if you remember, Genesis 1. But what we have here is a description of an uncultivated Middle Eastern desert. So this passage isn't meant to say like, oh no, there's no vegetation on the entire earth. What it's describing is this uncultivated Middle Eastern desert, an idea that's probably pretty foreign to us here in Kansas, but to the original audience, that's, that's like everyday life for them. They understand that very well. And so you notice here that there's no rain and there's no one to cultivate the ground. And those seem like odd details for us, to us, for there to be here. Why does it particularly note that? Rather than meaning that there's no vegetation anywhere, like I said, it meant, it's meant to draw our attention to the lack of cultivated plants. Ultimately, it's anticipating and it's paralleling what will happen in, in Genesis, the end of Genesis 3, and into four, where man will not be keeping a garden, but he'll be forced to cultivate the soil because of his sin. So you see, even here, it, it's foreshadowing what is going to end up happening. That man will need to cultivate the soil and that God will bring rain. And what will that rain produce? Do you know? A flood. So in verse 7, it says, 
Then the Lord God formed the man. So at, at this time when, when it was this uncultivated soil, there's no one there to cultivate it because no man has been created. So we'll see that's part of our purpose. Verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of, du- of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Ah, see, now we get the understand, we understand the circumstances. God creates man, he forms him from the dust of the ground and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. There, there are two terms in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in, in Hebrew for, for this idea of breath. One is a common word that's used 400 times throughout the Old Testament, and the other one is rare. It's only used 25 times. And as you can imagine, since I'm setting up this this way, this word is the rare one. See, the, the common one can be applied to God and to man and to animals and to all sorts of things. But the rare one is only used for God and for man. It's specific As Coleman talked about a couple weeks ago, God was created, or man was created in the image of God. There's a unique thing that happened when God breathed the breath of life into man. He didn't do that in that way to anything else. We're special. (laughs) We're special. Okay? No, that could be cliche, but it's actually true according to the Bible. So we talked a few weeks ago, we're unique. And God makes Adam differently than any of the other animals. Man has a capacity here for relationship with God to fulfill the responsibilities that God will give him. Ultimately, God gives Adam the capacity for service. He gives Adam the capacity to be in relationship with him and to fulfill the commands that he's going to give him and to serve him. That's a unique privilege. Nothing else in all of creation can do that in that way. Now we know, unfortunately, sin has, has marred that. It moves us to think that we're primarily meant to be served or to serve ourselves. Do you understand that when we say that our goal in life is to be happy. My goal in life is to find happiness or, or whatever. That essentially at the base, what you are saying is my goal in my life is to serve myself, to get mine. Necessarily at the expense of others. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know how else to like, say that. I mean, that, that logically, that's the only way that that happens. Sin has corrupted our understanding of service. It's made us to want to serve ourselves, and, and it's made us also to think about service to anyone else as being a negative thing. And yet what the, the Bible is telling us is that if we understand who God is as creator and if we understand who we are as creation in comparison to God, then we understand that obedient service is the only right response that we could have. It's like if you've ever watched a, a, a movie or read a book in, say, like times where there are kings, the most notable, like the easy to, to think about uh, for me is Lord of the Rings, Right? 
And when the king, the rightful king, when, when Aragorn sits on the throne finally, it's this wonderful moment because everyone recognizes he's the rightful king. He ought to have been on the throne the entire time. They recognize the honor and the blessing it is to serve the king, and they bow to him. But that's not all that God did. He also gave Adam a place for service. Verses 8 and 9, it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, right? And he put man, the man whom he formed there. And out of the garden, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for fruit. The tree, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, there's desert all around. And yet when God forms man, he makes a garden for him that has everything that he could need already right there for him. And he puts him in it. God provides for him. And from God's provision comes everything. Verses 10 through 14, we have this description of these rivers. And at first I thought, why, why, why do we have these rivers described here? What, what point is, is this kind of excursus on these rivers? Why do we have that? You remember, there's no rain yet. But these, these rivers, they provide life. They provide not just any life, but abundance, so much abundance that what we see described is that abundance is spilling out into other places outside of the garden. It's so much life, so much provision that God has given Adam to live in. What's amazing to me, what's amazing to me is God richly blesses Adam, not because of his obedient service, but before he ever serves one minute. Do you guys see that? Before Adam can even do anything, God has already created a garden to put him in with all the blessings that he could ever need or want. It's not, it's not because Adam served so well that then he gets, but God in his generosity and his love blesses him with everything he could need beforehand. You see, we think of service because of our sinfulness, the sinfulness in the world, sinfulness in our own hearts. When we think of service, we immediately begin to think of oppression and subjugation. We think of being dominated by others. We think of all these negative things. We love the idea of serving when, when you are asked, hey, should you serve or should people serve? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love it until we're the one who has to serve someone, right? And then suddenly it's not so great. Sin has corrupted the idea of service. Why, why are those stories about kings and kingdoms, why are people so glad to have a good king over them, to have a good king that they serve? Well, the, the, the reason is that a good king king brings abundant blessing to his people, right? When you read even in the Bible about King David and King Solomon, what you find there are descriptions that these good kings actually made life better for all the people. Did they ask for the, the people, did they, they serve the king? Yes. 
But they did so gladly because they knew that under that king's rule, they were more blessed than without his rule. And these are flawed men. How much more a God who doesn't just rule an abundant land, but created it and and placed Adam in it. See, being made to serve God, being created to obediently serve God is a blessing in and of itself. So we get to verses 15 through 17, kind of kind of the, the climax of our passage, really, the, the, the high point, the most important piece. God gave Adam the parameters for his service. And we're going to see a couple of things here. We're going to see that God gave him uh, his purpose. We're going to see that God gave him a prohibition and permission here. First, God gives Adam a purpose within the garden. What's he responsible for doing? What's it say in verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You know, that's, that's our first job description, to work and to keep the garden that God has put us in. To cultivate not dry ground that hasn't had any plants, but to continue and work in the abundance that God has given us in the garden. And both these words, work it and keep it, they're, they're terms that when they are carried out throughout the Old Testament, they actually have this, this deep uh, uh, spiritual uh, meaning, this, this meaning of spiritual service to God. The term work carries the idea of tilling, like tilling a garden. If you've ever gardened before, you know what that's like. Elsewhere, it describes uh, worshiping and serving the Lord. When the people come and they worship and they service the, uh, serve the Lord in that way, the term there is work. Do you know when we come here every Sunday morning to worship God, uh, this, this isn't Cody working and y'all just sitting and watching and spectating. This isn't Amanda working or Coleman working or whoever's up here is doing, doing work and, and everyone else is spectating. No, the idea is that we are all doing work together. We are all doing the work of the Lord, the spiritual service of worshiping God. This isn't Cody's work time and everyone else is hanging out. We're worshiping God together. The term keep is related to the idea of watching over. As a, uh, we tried our hand at gardening for the first time this summer. After years and years of my wife saying she wanted to plant a vegetable garden, I finally relented. COVID-19 makes us do crazy things. We, we've, we've done okay. I mean, we've done okay. But every day... Amanda goes out, I'm going to check my tomatoes. She comes back with a report, which ones are looking like they're going to be ripe soon. And you want the cucumbers to be green and you want the tomatoes to not be green and, you know, all those different things. So, but she watches over it every day, goes out and checks it every day, seeing how's it doing? Is it watered? Elsewhere in 
scripture, this idea of keeping, it describes obeying and keeping God's commands, that we would watch over our lives and the lives of others. Adam's purpose was both spiritual and physical, or rather, his physical work had spiritual significance. And why shouldn't we see our physical work today in the same way? Do you see your physical work as having spiritual significance? When you wake up on Monday morning, tomorrow, and you go to work at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whenever you go to work, do you see that work that you do as having spiritual significance for God, as being a worship to God? Because it is. Because it is. It's a moment where you get to obediently serve God through the particular job he's given you in this life and in this world, whatever that is. You see, the garden wasn't a place where Adam laid in a hammock all day and birds came with grapes and dropped them in his mouth and he was just hanging out. I don't know, that's, why the, that's the picture I have in my head of the Garden of Eden for some reason. So that's a, a window into my mind Sorry, you had to see that. But that's not, that's not the picture that the Bible is describing. Friends, listen, creation alone won't fulfill us. I mean, do you realize that's basically what we're saying when we picture the garden that way? That creation alone is what fulfills us. That's not what fulfills us. God fulfills us. Serving God is what fulfills us. Being in partnership with him. Wow. What a privilege. But God has more. He also gives Adam a ton of permission in the garden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Adam is given this amazing permission to partake in all that God has provided. So while creation alone won't fulfill us, yet God says, enjoy creation. Enjoy what I've given you. That's okay. It's a good thing. Here's an important truth, guys. Fully, full enjoyment of God's blessings come from ob obediently serving God. We can't fully enjoy his blessings without obedient service to him. But there's not just a permission here. There's also a prohibition in verse 17. It says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now this verse, it creates kind of two more technical questions, especially if you understand or know where the story is going. Now Adam and Eve will, will eventually eat of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Creates two technical questions. First question is this, what's meant by knowledge? What does it mean when it says the knowledge of good and evil? And there's a few different ideas that commentators, scholars kick around. I think this is my best understanding of what it means. It's not that Adam was ignorant of what he should or shouldn't do. God made that really clear, right? You can eat all of this, don't eat that. It couldn't be more crystal clear. 
So it's not like Adam is walking around going like, oh, I don't know what's good and what's evil. God told you. Rather, it's that Adam doesn't get to decide what he thinks he should or shouldn't do. He doesn't have the role of deciding this is what's good and this is what's evil. That's not for him to decide. See, the name of the tree relates to the prohibition itself. I'll give you an example from Genesis. Genesis 24. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there eventually. But here's basically what happens. Abraham has a son, and his son needs a wife, and he wants a wife for his son from his own family. And so he sends his servant, his top guy, he sends him off to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And by God's leading, this servant finds this woman named Rebecca. Okay? And when the servant explains to Rebecca's dad and brother what he's doing, what, why he's there, and how God led him particularly to Rebecca, here is their response. They say to the servant this, quote, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. The point of what they're saying isn't, oh, we, we've now lost our ability to talk. The point of what they're saying is it's not for us to decide if this thing is good or bad because it's from God. God's decided. And so that's the same phrase, good or bad, good and evil from Genesis chapter 2. So what it's saying is it's not for Adam or for humanity then out of our knowledge or our opinion to decide what is or isn't good or bad. That's God's place only. That's part of God's job description. It's not part of our purpose. So that's, that's what I believe, the best as I can tell, according to the context of, of this passage and the words, what that idea of knowledge of good and evil means. And it's going to be particularly important as we move forward into Genesis 3 because they're going to decide Actually, this fruit from the tree of the good knowledge of good and evil, it actually, I think it looks good to eat, even though God says, don't eat it. And every day, guys, this is what we do. We say, nah, God, I know what God said, and I know I'm supposed to obediently serve him, and yet, that looks good. So I think I'll do it anyways. And it doesn't bring blessing. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring satisfaction. It doesn't bring happiness. It brings pain into our life. Second technical question here is, what is meant by you shall surely die? And this will be really important later. But I want to answer it right here. The form of the verb here matches that of a divine or royal decree, meaning that it's the consequence it's a consequence that God himself will actively deal out. It's not like what he's saying is, well, hey, don't eat of the, the fruit from the knowledge of good and evil because that fruit happens to be poisonous. And if you eat it, then the poison will kill you. No, God's saying, I will kill you. Let me be frank. That's what God's saying. I will personally deal out this punishment. 
if you eat of it. It is a violation against God for us to say, I know you said that that is wrong, but I think it's right. The term is used 12 times in the Old Testament, this idea of you shall surely die, that, that, that verb. It's used 12 times, and it's an all-described punishment for sin or an untimely death because of someone's sin. Twice, the punishment is called off, and three times, there's the possibility of pardon that's included with it. I say all that to mean that the point of the phrase isn't instantaneous death. The point of the phrase isn't as soon as that fruit hits their lips, they fall over and die. The point is that it's a divine decree of a death sentence. I'll give you an example. Again, from Abraham's life, Genesis 20. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they go into this new land and Abraham lies to the king, King Abimelech. He says, oh no, that's not my wife, that's my sister. He tells Sarah, hey, when we go into a new land, you're, like, you're kind of a looker. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, that's why I married you, right? And, but when we go there, I'm afraid that because you're so attractive that the king will want you for himself, and so he'll kill me to get you. And so if you just say you're my sister, then that'll save my life. And so that's the lie that they begin to, to, to throw out there. And so that's what they do. And they go into the land and Sarah's attractive. The king's like, man, she's attractive. Bring her into my house as one of my, you know, lady friends. And, and before, it says, before he's able to, quote, approach her, God comes to him in a dream and tells him, don't touch her. Don't touch her or, or you and your whole household will surely die. That's what it says. And he promptly returns her and he doesn't die. So the point of the phrase is an instantaneous death. It's this decree of a death sentence. It's this prohibition. You can eat all of this, have all this blessing, but just, just don't eat this one. Don't decide for yourself what is good and what is not good. Why? Why the prohibition? Why the punishment? Is God a divine buzzkill here? Not in the least. God's prohibition is actually meant to restrict man into the place of blessing, to protect him, to keep him, to enhance his life. Adam's fulfilling of his purpose and enjoying all that, that, that God's given him permission to enjoy is actually protected by God's prohibition. Do you understand that? That your purpose in life and, and all the things that God has given you to enjoy, it's actually protected when you don't do the things that God says not to do. And consider in a few verses that Adam and Eve, when they were living within God's parameters, it says that they were naked and unashamed, right? And yet... Later, after eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realize their nakedness in a different way and they're looking at each other and they begin to decide for themselves what's good and bad as they look at each other and as they look at themselves. And immediately they feel this need to cover themselves up, to hide, because they began to decide for themselves rather than trusting when God says, no, this is all good. 
they begin to decide for themselves what's good and bad. You see, our world wants to, to correct this, this shame and this hurt and this self-consciousness of sin that we feel, that we rightly feel when we sin. You want, the world wants to correct it by redefining sin, but God's parameters are wired into who we are. And to turn that off is to cut yourself off from who you were created to be. There's a benefit to us when we obediently serve God within his parameters. Last piece. We're not going to spend a whole bunch of time here because in a couple of weeks, we're going to really like bear down on these verses. Actually, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at them. But in verses 18 through 25, it says that God gave Adam a partner in service. God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for man that he should be alone. And that's not, listen, Remember, that's not by man's evaluation. It's not Adam going, hey, God, what's the deal? Like, I'm by myself. There's no one like me, right? Because it's not for Adam to decide what is good and what is evil. That's God's job. And God decides that man ought to have a helper. And it was to Adam's benefit and to the benefit of fulfilling his service for him to not do those things alone. And so in verses 19 through 20, God brings all the animals. I love that the Bible just makes, he just, it just makes it abundantly clear that there really wasn't anything else for Adam. It's so much so that God parades all the animals in front of Adam and nope, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, none of these are going to work. God makes sure that Adam knows you need a partner and it's not any of these. There's nothing suitable. There's not a suitable helper that's fit for him that would complement him. And so God makes woman from his side a partner to match up with him, to complement him in the obedient service that he is to fulfill to God. We'll talk about, in two weeks, we'll talk about this importance of the covenant of marriage that is initiated here in these verses, how important that is to us. But don't think that this is the only way that we can have help in our obedient service to God. If you're single with us, I want you to know that if God leads you to be married, great. And that can and should help you to love and obediently serve God. But the heart of the passage here is the need for humanity to be in relationship with one another, just as God, as a trinity, is in relationship with himself. Now, obviously, that needed to start with marriage, right? Because if it didn't start with marriage, then there wouldn't be other people to be in relationship with. But for us now... God has put us into a family, his family. And when Christ does his work in our, in our lives, we are adopted into God's family as his, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even if you're called to, to never be married, if that be God's will for your life, you don't have to serve him alone. See, God made man to obediently serve him. And God gave Adam everything that he needed to be able to do that. He blessed him with everything that he needed to be able to not only serve him well, 
But to find joy and, and, and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness out of that service. The same is true for us. Just as Adam's work was service to God, listen, do you view your work as service to God, whatever you do? We talked about, last week we talked about how taking a Sabbath is glorifying to God. Well, God's concerned with the other six days as well. The other six days are about obediently serving him as well. And here's this wonderful hope in this, guys. I love this. Because if you're anything like me, there are moments where in your job, you feel like you're failing. Right? There are moments in your job where you feel like, man, I am terrible at this. Why am I even in this job? Moms who stay at home, are there moments when you feel like, I am a terrible mom? I stink at this. Man, I know it's true of me. But the wonderful hope is this, that no matter, no matter how you feel about that, no matter if other people look in and say, I don't think you're very successful in your job, no matter any of those things, even if your boss fires you, if at the end of the day you go, you know what? I obediently served God as well as I could in that job. You succeeded in God's eyes, period. You fulfilled your purpose. And you can take that to the bank. And when you die and you stand before Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You got fired from your job, but you obeyed me. And that's what matters most. We know that in the midst of that, we oftentimes choose to serve ourselves instead of serving others. We choose to work and to live for ourselves rather than serving God. And yet, in Matthew 20, it says, Jesus says of himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus's purpose, guys, was not to make himself happy. Was not to make much of himself, but was to serve us. We were created to serve God as well. The wonderful thing about Christ is because he came to serve us, not himself. Because he came to die give his life as a ransom, when we have those moments where we fail to serve others and we fail to serve God and we serve ourselves instead, Christ didn't fail. And his service to us is grace on all of those moments. Because of his service to us, we can find forgiveness in all the moments where we served ourselves. And the wonderful thing is though Christ came to serve and not to be served, and yet he rose from the dead and God glorified him. And we know that if we give our lives to serving God and to serving others for Christ's sake, then God will glorify us because of Christ as well. So we don't need to pursue our own happiness. We don't need to pursue our own satisfaction because if we serve God, 
He will give us every abundant blessing that we possibly could need. See, the wonderful thing about serving others when we do it for Jesus' sake is we not only follow his example, but we get to share in his glory as well. And there's nothing better than sharing in his glory. It actually fulfills us and brings us joy, even though at times it's difficult, I'll admit, because it turns our eyes away from an inward focus, away from ourselves, and it turns our eyes to Christ instead. It turns our eyes from dwelling on our own issues and our own problems and begins to focus it on the solution to those problems, which is Christ. It draws our attention to him, who is our ultimate source of joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. So as we consider our own lives, whether we're living to obediently serve God, I want to take a minute as we go into communion, as we really dwell on the service that, that Christ did for us. I'd like for you to take a minute to, to think about the purpose that you have for your life. Have you been living to serve God or serve yourself? When you think in your head or when you think in your heart about your life, are the questions that you're asking, how can I be more happy? How can I be more satisfied? How can I get the thing I want? How can I get the thing I think I need? Or are your questions, God, what do you want? God, where are you leading me? When you have a decision that you're making about your life, is your first question, how will this satisfy me? Is your first question, will this make me happy? Or is your first question, how will this help fulfill the purpose that God has for me? I just want you to take a minute and think about those things. Confess any selfishness that you find in your hearts. Let's take a second and consider that.